Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 29 of the Material Analysis Podcast. I am Bela. We're back together after quite a long time um, to record an episode on hatred. So today's uh, today's pod topic is hatred. Um, the term hatred seems to be thrown around a lot because of the current political moment. Um, we see a lot of conversations about how people have become hateful. Every time there is an incident of violence, we are constantly constructing it through the lens of hatred. And we felt as a pod that we should try to unpack what this hatred is, because it's often given a very emotive, affective sort of uh, connotation. But very often, uh, we don't quite understand if there is a mechanism to hatred. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Hatred is a topic. I am joined with Chandu, Dilip and Pinky. Everybody say hello. 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 Hi. Uh, And so let's get started. So um, what do we think about uh, what we've heard so far in our everyday discourse about hatred? I would like to talk a bit about the mechanism of hatred because this is the material analysis podcast i am completely unsatisfied if we look at hatred purely from some kind of uh, psychosocial like you know uh, phenomena which is ephemeral rather i am interested in so do you remember that one case where a person was l- l- lynched was killed and then burnt burned in in rajasthan and this act this incredibly hateful disgusting act was then video uh, like it was videographed and that video went viral among uh, among uh, among fascists essentially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, 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 my idea is that hatred as it exists in contemporary society mm-hmm. a lot of it is accumulated amplified and constructed in very specific ways some of those specific ways use some of the current technologies which have never existed in the past and mm-hmm. that is what makes things very interesting i'm of course not saying that you know communal or caste hatred did not exist in the past or did not exist in a virulent mass variety of course it did we went through the partition which was a incredibly bloody event mm-hmm. but what i'm saying is that i think as was then and as is now i do not think that this sort of hatred is to put it in a better way natural i think that it is very much incited and constructed and now there are tools in the hands of people who do that so i am interested to explore what sustains hatred and what are the mechanisms through which hatred is raised and then used as a political weapon right pinky do you want to add to that yeah i mean since we're at the stage where we're talking about uh what what are sort of point of entry into this is right why we're interested in this and i agree a lot with chandu in that i i find it unsatisfying to think of hatred as either this purely uh, emotional thing that does not have any uh, material or structural connotations to it at all. But also the other even more sinister part, which is something that is almost like an inheritance that goes so deep that there is no way of 
uh, tracing it back to some point of construction, right? Because once we start accepting it as this inheritance, then we almost feel like, oh, it has this unshakable, like mystical presence that we can never do away with. But uh, once we start thinking of it as constructed through certain mechanisms, we can then think of taking those mechanisms down as well. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I do find that a, a good way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also, I think, felt the need to sit down and ask myself, why do we need to use the word at all right like if uh, uh, should we not just use a vocabulary which we don't have to work so hard to unpack and one which seems to come kind of with more ready-made leftist materialist uh, connotations Uh, and so when I was thinking about this I figured that I mean there are two things one is that is already so much in the discourse right with uh, you know like in India, people do talk about communal hatred. In in America, people say like, you know, love Trump's hate kind of that messaging. Mm-hmm. So one way of looking at it is that, yes, it's there in the discourse now for better or for worse. So we have to talk about it and, and make that more material. But the other thing also is that um, e- even sometimes as leftists, if we, if we also feel like we don't want to touch anything that looks sentimental with a barge pole, right? And we just want to mm-hmm. stay away from all of that. I found that that doesn't always help either because sometimes what we have is these seeming contradictions, right? Where where like logic cannot fully explain all of it. So when we, when we talk about people say voting against their interests or whatever, and or we talk about the possibilities of say organizing or solidarity, like anti-caste uh, organizing or solidarity, and there seem to be these... Um, almost emotional differences that kind of keep getting in the way uh mm-hmm. it, it seems as though just wishing those away or just always offering like this neat economic explanation right like people try to do saying oh the white working class well they just are you know they have the they've been left out of the economy and therefore they vote against their like it, it explains something but it doesn't always fully explain everything and yeah. so I feel like because there are these excesses and these things that that keep kind of coming back and we keep kind of cycling back to these barriers in the conversation, like it interests me because I feel like we still need to think our way through them and and think of what kind of explanations satisfy us in both a leftist way, but also in like the human way where it really seems to account for all of the phenomena. Yeah, I think I agree with you. But uh, Dilip, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I just want to kind of expand on it and uh, want to say one important thing because I think a lot of uh, anguish and anger that people feel of um, ephemeral and temporary, but hatred is really, as we discussed, it's engineered and it sort of has the potential to become permanent and thus it's very dangerous. So, like, before even we talk about how uh, propaganda constructs the other and how people are kind of manufacturing, uh, you know, how, how people are manipulated into hating uh, another group of people, we have to also see that there are uh, serious conditions which gives rise to the fact that there is a possibility to be manipulated and to have this uh, sort of hatred because we see for a long, long time, not just now, but historically, we have seen a sort of uh, injustice to the uh, to the large amount of uh, working class people or to the large amount of uh, uh, populace in general in which we have wealth concentrated with uh, with one section of elite. So this sort of powerlessness that people feel is something that's very real. So mm-hmm. you have potentially mm-hmm. great propagandists who are uh, capable of turning this sort of uh, powerlessness into victimhood and then directing mm-hmm. it towards the other, towards the mm-hmm. minorities, towards the people who are who are completely uh, vulnerable. So there is a platform there 
which exist in which these people are able to uh, you know uh, whip up the hatred and then exactly direct it to people uh, whom they want to direct it to the mm. other thing that i want to say is the ineffectiveness in which the uh, the the uh, essentially the mainstream sort of uh, people who say uh, loud trumps hate handle the uh, hatred that is there Uh, mm-hmm. that is going towards not so material aspect of it but catering to exactly the framework which is engineered to perpetuate hatred so essentially mm-hmm. if you see uh, the uh, let it be caste hatred or communal hatred or something else what it essentially does is that uh, uh, x or y says oh i saw this person of this marginalized or this x group doing uh, this bad thing and then this is essentially them you know like this is mm. the essential character of this particular group so distilling some sort of malicious habit or malicious character and then to mm-hmm. say that this is the essential part or dna of this group and that's who mm-hmm. they are and mm-hmm. the response from the liberal side or the response from the sort of uh, mainstream side is that oh no 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 you have one or two bad apples here or there but then mm. you know the rest of the group is uh, something else the majority of the group is not that i think that's a mm. flawed response which keeps on you know um, uh, adding to this uh, framework of uh, um, uh, perpetuating hatred that is always going to end up like with with idiots who is pointing out statistical number of x number of people why uh, in this particular group believe why thing and so on and so forth mm-hmm. i think the uh, the, uh, the essential fight towards that would always be that it doesn't matter what you think about the group it doesn't matter what you are seen in one particular person i'm not even going to go into the fact if it is true or not even mm. if it is true fuck you that is not a framework in which you uh, analyze human beings in which you put down and stomp their dignity so mm-hmm. this this kind of uh, hatred can never be combated with some sort of wishy-washiness with some sort of propping up examples models role models of how this particular person from this particular community is great or so on and so forth but mm-hmm. by you know but by asserting the humanity and dignity of every single person in their community irrespective mm-hmm. of what uh, uh, political uh, you know um, uh, positions x or y group that you allege that they may hold Mm-hmm. and i know i i think i agree with you dilip that there is a lot of framing of this discourse as discourses of individuality the idea that the few bad apples can be countered by the few good apples and so you you seek out the good apples to disprove who the bad apples are and what they did so there is a, a lot of liberal responses to this very much stressing the idea of love again sort of reduce it to the these individual moments or demonstrations that somehow are not able to address hatred as a framework right uh, i think chandu wants has something to that go on chandu on the leaps point about you know a liberal response to systemic hatred and when i say systemic hatred i mean like i do not think again that hatred is just an emotion i think it's a it is sustained by very material means and as a as a social uh, psychological phenomenon it's, it's 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 not something that that just occurs at that level it, it's something that uh that is almost an ideological thing so there is this book which i found very interesting it's called everybody lies now the book itself is a very technocratic neoliberal sort of a book it's written by a person who was the data scientist at google and you know has a sort of a techno solutionist data can solve data can give us insights etc sort of ideas some of which should be critic 
However, there is a point which the book makes very well and which I agree with. And the point is that often sociologists fail to understand that surveys, etc., which are which were one of the like the primary tools of sociologists are flawed in the way that, well, people lie. People mm-hmm. lie to others and people also like to lie to themselves to mm-hmm. feel better about mm-hmm. themselves. And hence a lot of like reputed sociology studies in America after Obama's election went as far as to say that, you know, racism has probably been dented in some a concrete fashion considering a, a black man has just been made president. Mm-hmm. And what uh, interested the author of this book, who was a graduate student at that time, is that what were people saying in Google searches? And you mm. can actually find that out. Google Trends, like you don't need to be mm-hmm. like, you don't need any backend access. You can find out what is trending in Google, like what phrases are being uh, trending, etc. So he tried to find out what were people searching about Obama after the election. Mm-hmm. And some of the most popular searches were incredibly racist. Mm-hmm. So... The interesting thing was that in the same areas, when you when you go and uh, you know do these <coughs> surveys, etc., these people would say completely different things. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, when he matched what people were googling, and he he tried to make a map of racial slurs in Google, and that mm-hmm. map pretty much uh, point to point sat with the map of the Trump election. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm. So, like the areas which like people were saying that, oh, those areas have like a white working class who were like left behind this, that. And later it turned out that those narratives are fallacious because a lot of the like the lot of the people who were voting for Trump were not actually that poor. Like yeah. a lot mm. of them were like the rentier class and like fairly middle class and not really the white working class. Mm-hmm. So, so places like Boston, etc., fairly like fairly like not really poor places so yeah. the point was that it was hatred it was not something you can explain away by uh, economic like th- that vulgarly by a vulgar economic sort of an analysis mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and uh, also that you know that hatred could systematically exist despite some place being you know considered democratic slash progressive in american discourse or you know like not in the deep south but actually in the mm-hmm. north etc etc so so the point which that book makes very well is that systemic hatred is something you can't like you know it's not a surface level thing that you can just uh, try to do like a you know a survey and find out that oh what is it because Again, the reason people are much more honest in their Google searches rather than sociology surveys is because when they're doing Google searches, they don't think anybody is looking. But yeah. Big Brother is, of course, looking, right? Google is always looking. Yeah. So uh, I would be interested in that kind of an analysis of India. Like, I, I would like, because over the last uh, one decade with the proliferation of internet in India, I am very curious as to how these mechanisms of hatred have been cultivated by the fascists and how they have been nurtured in a way. I do not think that uh, I, I do not think that these are irreversible things. Yeah. I do not think that these are natural things. Mm-hmm. Like uh, uh, you know, somebody, a friend of mine, was discussing with me that some of the areas which are like sung strongholds now. 
they yeah. used to be like the epicenter of working class activity at one spot at time yes. places like kanpur bombay you know uh, these places yeah. had a lot of communist politics so it's yeah. not that you are looking at clean caste divisions or class divisions and being like oh okay these are the people who belong to a certain caste or a certain class and hence they are bigots no it, it is more sophisticated than that and yeah. and i would be curious to know that what are the people in these cities googling in the dead of night when they think nobody is looking and i would be very interested to know that like what are these like you know like uh, you have complete communication networks between people through just whatsapp and and which like uh, you know the more younger or the more polished or the more progressive people can't even penetrate because those are completely closed off networks i'm very interested to know what sort of uh, what sort of messaging happens there and how it inflames certain passions at some point how it mm-hmm. triggers certain kind of viralities i'm mm-hmm. also very interested to know uh, things like sung pop like this this genre of music on youtube oh my where, gosh uh, Uh, yeah you know sang is like ghar ghar bhagwa chhayega ram rajya aayega like uh, you have these very catchy songs and you know you haven't like, seen the hanuman trance music the no no i have seen the, I, have, I, have, i have seen all of that i i, I really like yeah hip hop as well watch, pop and like i am very fond of fascist art basically i i watch a lot of <laughs> fond so, is a strange uh, word to use but um, to take off what you've said i i do think you're right in that the we, we seem to understand for instance that the sang has done a, a kind of social engineering for vote bank purposes right that they're they're actively cultivating vote banks for the bjp in very specific ways but we also don't seem to think that that can work for something like hatred so assume that hatred is sort of long standing inherited uh, innate in some ways for like you know hindu bastions who always hated muslims or something like that but you're pointing to a very specific technological and media ecology where that kind of hatred can go viral right and proliferate and sort of have a feedback loop to politics on the ground that is extremely interesting and necessary to track uh, i want to bring pinky in here because i think she had something to comment on this as well oh i mean i guess i was thinking because um chandu kind of brought up the the book about lying uh, sort of while mulling over dilly's point and i was wondering what what led to your uh, train of thought there and do you feel like so the thing that you know people are are googling in the privacy and like shamelessness of their own homes do you feel in some ways that liberals are in denial about that underbelly of society yes, yes, or that's that's okay. how, that's how i started to think like when right. dilip says that you know you have this very liberally oh love conquers hate etc yeah. etc or you know have like this kind of electoral politics or that kind of you know tweaks little and i think that sort of stuff simply does not get down to the level of the people and really talk to them about what they believe so yeah. i completely do not think that people are stupid and that you know mass of people can be fooled for a long period of time however yeah. i do think that people could be made to believe that they are being very intelligent and that, that Uh, they are actually doing something for their best interests when when the reality is that they are not but in such a scenario it is essential to know what they actually believe in in order to mm. change that and you cannot sort of have this wishy washy liberal uh, i mean if uh, pramod was here he calls everything liberal he says that oh, you know <laughs> like the 
most people who call themselves leftists are also liberals, which is true, but okay. not in this particular case, because I'm saying that the mechanism of how this transmits, I think it ought to be a measurable mechanism. I think it ought to be a testable mechanism. I think it ought to be an investigable mechanism. People have done that in Western analysis, like people mm -hmm. have measured the alt-right and people have found like YouTube chains of radicalization and you know how that connects with forums like Stormfront, how that connects with militias on the ground, etc, etc. And that kind of analysis, it's very essential that we do on, you know, the, the Indian middle class and how it connects with the song and where the information is coming from, how it gets viralized. So trying to understand the failure of the liberal articulations that you're getting at is uh, you think that when they're not investigating enough, the so-called love or whatever they think it will conquer hate is sort of acts more like faith almost, right? Like the fact that we don't really know what this hate is, but we know that love can solve it, right? Whereas if you feel like if yeah, it was... Yeah, it's, it's a bit of magic thinking essentially. Yeah, yeah. But if it, was more invest if it was more investigative, then it would actually have better ideas for how to solve it. And I think that going off that, maybe I just want to like throw open a question and <laughs> Dilip may or may not want to take it up, um, which is that... Why is it that hatred is something that is so easy for us to see as ideology, as historical, as propaganda? But when the the sort of the the positive counters to that that people offer, like love or whatever, like why do they always seem so woo woo and and wishy washy? Uh, because like is actually love not is it like does love actually belong to a completely different register and a different set of forces than hate and are the like the, the two sound like they're two ends of a spectrum but are they not supposed to be speaking to each other at all is there not a dialectics there and if so what is it about hatred that seems like it invites its opposite into the conversation but that's not really what it's about like love is not really what it's about at all right like i might yeah. have a response I, to that but i'm going to ask dilip to come in with his point actually actually i was just thinking about it the second you said and i think it's I don't know, I'm not going to give a very sophisticated answer, but this is what I think. I think the articulation of the opposite of hate has to have some sort of, you know, inherent moral as well as uh, political uh, integrity to it. And I think that's really a rarity nowadays, and it's not mm -hmm. so easy to come by because there are two uh, real obstacles to this. Because I think uh, when when you talk about the opposite of hatred, and it has to be not hypocritical, right? When you mm -hmm. articulate the politics of love and when it is inherently hypocritical, if you are going to talk about just a real banal example of like, uh, you know, uh, love trumps hate and then you start bombing other countries or you stack up your administration with these uh, people from Raytheon Corporation, of course, people are going mm -hmm. to be very cynical about it. And then the second thing is that even if you take out liberals in this case, in which I think they are, uh, they, their politics and their articulation of uh, the politics of love is, is so empty and it's so full of, uh, you know, uh, the 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 uh, the impetus to maintain the status quo, which mm. perpetuates the framework of hate. That it kind of sustains hate rather than getting rid of it. But even us, uh, from the uh, leftist perspective, we are also afraid of, you know, articulating from the framework of love because it yeah. it has become that. We, inherently just not in the internet but in otherwise there is such a lot of cynicism and this is an mm. incredible victory of uh, neoliberalism and atomization of human beings that they have actually won uh, over and then 
make us every time when we articulate we are kind of in full fear that it is almost impossible or you have you have this or that and it's it's not it's never going to be non cynical and i think i'm just mm-hmm. completely going off the rails here but i really believe that to overcome the how how do you overcome the the viciousness and and the framework which material of hatred which materially benefits so uh, so many of these uh, elites it's not so easy and if the it is not going to be easy to articulate the politics of law it's not going to be easy yeah. to talk language of it it's going to be it has difficult. to have the same yeah it has to have the same weight behind it that those centuries of accumulated hatred have behind hate right like and the love part can't just come in on like and be superficial and and counter that same thing that has so much historical weight behind it but yeah. i also want to push back against the idea that hatred is that historical like i do yeah. think yeah. residues yeah, are are yeah. there but i don't think that hatred i mean this is the thing that hindutva wants to say right there's eternal mm-hmm. hinduism eternal muslim invader eternal uh, discord between these communities but uh, chandu's point was 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 making was that you know the technologies that are required to sustain hatred means that hatred on its own cannot be sustained right that there is something that has to constantly fuel it and so I I think I agree with Dilip very strongly here that the counter to that and neoliberalism has a huge role to play in the commodification and the trivialization of love or whatever other strong emotional comeback we might have for hatred. But like building community that actually is built upon principles of love, even though we might not necessarily call it that, I think is an incredibly hard project to imagine because of the way in which love has been trivialized in popular discourse. Dilip, did you want to respond to that? No, I just wanted to say something that I was supposed to say before. Uh... uh thank you after question i just yeah. want to contribute Sorry. to uh, uh i just want to add to chandu's point here it's it's because the one important thing is we are analyzing from the uh, perspective in which you have this constant hatred machinery in india right so you have really sophisticated networks through which they propagate really dumb things which make uh, you know uh, uh, hatred an ongoing growing phenomenon so one important thing that you have to notice is the amount of capital that is being put behind this not mm-hmm. just in social media platforms but also in mainstream media platforms where they have actually the, the mainstream media in india i think from all sides i think by this point we all can agree can has gone completely batshit crazy that we don't this is probably we have never been a great country but this the level of toxicity right now is extraordinary and this is of course mm-hmm. this is being funneled day in and day out by the uh, by the hindutva machinery but one thing that we have to also notice is there is a huge capital that is being put behind uh, this sort of uh, social media engineer as well as mainstream media engineer hatred and if we are going to meaningfully combat that it's going to take a lot because we are not like you there are many platforms through which we can communicate and disseminate but mm-hmm. the effectiveness that at which the hindutva has pulled this is really astonishing mhm and this is because i think in many ways we are all tapped out of these hindutva networks so we have not actually witnessed this in person right like the transformation that several of us are have seen in our acquaintances family members community members um it's astonishing to us because we are not tapped into the same networks of communication that they are that are clearly fomenting this um so yeah i think i, think I, think... I agree with chandu like we we are most a lot of people really tap out of networks and if we don't talk i mean like i'm not going to be this guy who's saying like talk to your enemies or whatever but if you are mm-hmm. not even talking to them in a sense with the purpose to understand how it works yeah like if you are immediately sh- like 
closing your eyes is not going to help you. It's, it yeah. has really got us, the rot has gotten so deep. If you are not going to understand it in all forms and ways, materially, technologically, and how it emotionally really uh, caters to them, we are never going to get to the bottom of it. And also, I think there's a there's a huge. Uh, I'm coming to you, Chandu, but there's a huge uh, sort of you know this 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 conversation I've had with several people about how sanghis can also be nice people, and we know nice sanghis, and there's a tendency to want to laugh at their niceness. But I think what I want to also push people to maybe think about is that maybe they are nice, and they're being manipulated into a certain kind of politics. So maybe we can recuperate their niceness. You know, it need not be that uh, uh, people are inherently nice or people are inherently evil, but people are constantly operating on certain modes of knowledge and information that 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 they're being subjected to and i think that we have to op- understand that information and knowledge are constantly evolving and shaping their opinions and so we can't sort of resign ourselves and say we're doomed you know they're 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 evil people and then we can't do anything with that but chandu do you want to respond yeah like i don't even think the nazis were evil frankly uh, like i i do not think evil <laughs> as a category exists oh, i think wow. uh, Yeah like this is something i've talked about before as well i think the nazis were fairly normal people and you all we all our audience could have become nazis like see this is the thing which people don't want to face that the nazis were not monsters the nazis mm-hmm. were people like you and i and you and i are perfectly capable of doing the things the nazis did mm-hmm. so uh, this idea that you know these sanghis are like specifically evil people and we can't comprehend them i think that's a very stupid idea i think that uh, there needs to be an effort on the part of us to understand the fascist because you can't fight the fascist if you don't understand the fascist first of all mm-hmm, mm-hmm. second of all uh, you know when i say technology and all i do not even mean sophisticated things like you have to remember that the riling up of the entire country to, in order to get uh, the demolition of the babri ha- happening which was one of the high points of hatred in india which was one of the things that set the ball rolling to get the bjp in power a mm-hmm. lot of that incitement happened through cassette tapes cassette yes. tapes with the mm. uh, you know like w- the the propaganda voices of what needs to be done etc etc were distributed uh, also i remember like something very small like uh, you guys were talking about how fascists like to pretend that the hatred was always there the enmity was always there that their version of history was always there it's, yeah. it's funny how, how how much they would push for that and the sort of you know the sort of things they would push for like maintaining that sort of thing so i i know that a lot of people know that you know ramayan mahabharat were big cause of people becoming more hindutvavaid in the 90s these two serials mm-hmm. but one serial was even more influential in the right wing circles which was chanakya yeah uh, i, I don't know how, to... how, how many of you have seen chanakya i have yes chanakya yes. was basically basically fascist propaganda all right like it it was a complete fascist telling of the chanakya tale and and in that uh, television series there was this one episode which i remember and chuckle at times in which chanakya is talking about how magadha has become a rotten country and why he is needed to like stop dhananan's nonsense mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's very interesting so first chanakya talks about dhananan the monarch of magadha and he insinuates that you know dhananan is lower caste basically and then he also says that dhananan gives a lot of patronage to the shramana shramanas and who are the shramanas the shramanas are these forest going ascetics 
you know jain monks who, who are basically people who have given up on their brahmanhood and who have taken an alternate faith and and chanakya is raging about how you know giving audience to these people of different faiths how it is corrupting the country these forest dwelling uh, subversive uh, people who believe in different faiths so you know basically in the nahantis chanakya serial like you have chanakya ranting about urban naxals so sorry it it seems more or less clear that i think the there are forms of nation te- nation what is it storytelling about the nation and the uh, indian nation in particular that have existed uh, within sort of popular consciousness right this idea that there are outsiders and insiders there are uh, there is a moral decay to the nation that then has to be sort of fixed by um, you know a good statesman who usually is of course brahmin and male and you know uh, uh, all sorts of hegemonic categories here um that's been ex- that's been in existence for a long time through public broadcasting alone right so you're right in that i think um you know common sense ideas of good statesmanship for instance and good institutional corrections to you know people's uh, knowledge of history and so on have been in existence for a long time and are also in many ways responsible for uh, that they themselves are a form of technology right i'm also thinking for instance about the loudspeakers reading the ramayan you know during the ram janmabhoomi movement you had ram mandirs or other mandirs basically with people reading sections of the ramayana out loud and that would be a space where you could talk about evil forces or outsiders and so on and that all kinds of ways in which you could insert you know forms of hatred into the narrative uh, i'm going to go to dilip and then i'm going to come to pinky who had comments to make go on dilip pinky pinky raise her hands first okay no 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 that's okay go ahead especially oh. okay wait let's let's figure this out are you as what you're going to say like more of an original point or more in response to what chandu said uh i i I have to regroup myself. Just go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay, Pinky. Um, so, I what Chandu just said kind of uh, made me think of a bunch of questions, which I'm I'm going to try and uni- unify it all. But one is that uh, about the you know the 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 provocative Nazi statement, which is actually maybe not that provocative. I mean, I have actually no trouble at all accepting that the average person uh, who was sympathetic to the Nazis at that point of time. was uh just like you or me and that we could easily have been those apathetic people in that moment as well that's actually not a statement that i find very controversial in of itself but um a couple of things there like one i realized that like the reason that i think that statement is shocking when you say nazis were not evil is because when most people say nazis they don't mean everybody who was around in germany at that time but like Nazis are sort of a little more synonymous with the party and so you think of Nazis as people who were actively invested in organizing uh and in spreading propaganda whereas i feel like sanghi actually has a very different connotation in india i feel like sanghi is like anybody yeah, could be a sanghi i i did not mean every single german i, I must make it clear i meant nazi party members you meant nazi of, party members yeah i meant nazi party members like there were millions of them and um if you are going to say that millions of people were evil then how do you even usefully define evil and yeah i'm not of- sure evil is necessarily the most useful vocabulary to use in this in this case but okay if that is what you meant then that is definitely yeah i meant nazis yeah. i meant actual nazis i did not okay. mean like your tom dick and harry who have so you are saying in- that there were enough people who registered for it right like it wasn't just the leadership uh, but that there were so I, many people who were actively enrolled I mean, in the I think membership that kind of an analysis is a useless analysis because i don't think operation operates that way like yeah. i don't think that evil is a thing that makes sense to me 
like yeah, uh, yeah i mean I, i mean we can talk about ev- i mean yeah even makes more sense i think if you're talking about actions like sometimes if you're thinking just of a scale of horror or whatever like it might be useful to talk about what actions give off a sense of evil but uh, people thinking people as evil obviously i think is is not very useful beyond a point but okay fine so suppose we clarified that we are talking about the people like the large number of people who were affiliated with the party in some way even though they were not like absolutely in the top r- rank and file right so uh, one of the things then is like okay suppose we've established that how normal they seem and then we think of our own situation and we also think of how normal they seem but um i mean are there actual lessons to be learned from identifying the nazis as regular people in the sense that do, like could they have done it done anything any differently by talking to each other or like figuring each other out better in that moment like is there some failure to analyze the normalcy of the um you know <laughs> sorry <laughs> So, so dear audience the reason pinky is laughing like a deranged jackal is because uh, she always does this thing where she tries to problematize a point by ending it with a question like she and, the, and then we are answer, forced to answer uh, that question and deal with uh, the question we are forced to answer that question okay fine so, i will i will convert this into a statement i yes, am not declarative con- statement <laughs> i am not convinced that the that uh, that analyzing the normalcy of the nazis in that moment necessarily gets us anywhere because i am not sure that the main mistake made in that moment was that they failed to understand what was really going on so that understanding of the psyche of hindutva i'm not sure that it necessarily then turns everybody into like we are going to find some people who we can only think of strategizing against and then we're going to find some people who can potentially be won over to our side and i think making that choice is not as who, easy as it sounds who is talking about winning anybody over no i am not talking about winning nazis over guys you're not you're not <laughs> even <laughs> listening to me recuperationist like, was mentioned at one point <laughs> see the point is that in order to do anything against nazis and actual nazis at that it makes absolutely no like it, like to think of people in terms of good and evil is childish naive thinking it's not how reality operates like it's not how human beings operate sure but, that's the point i mean once you've made your polemical point by saying that they were not evil like where does that get us is is what i'm pushing that you that gets us like first of all it gets us by acknowledging that uh well nazi hood for a want of a better word could be a common phenomenon and okay. it could happen and and like even right at this point it's like very easy when indians say like oh no we are having fascism we are having a fascist movement this yeah. that etc etc the, the simple fact of the matter is that the death toll isn't even a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what fascism can get it's not right. and i have centers saying that to me all the time that we don't actually literally have that much death and we don't have a concentration camp so no, why are you calling it that problem there okay. is a problem the thing oh. i'm trying to say is that actual fascism of the nazi variety mm-hmm. could come any moment and the like of course it will not come in the nazi manner it will it will be our very own home home grown homemade organic jam you know it, it will be the whatever high quality homemade product we have created all by ourselves but the point is that it will not come from some alien vessel flying down from the sky it it will happen in your very homes it will it will happen 
even with the people who you have held dear a lot of people right. even now say you know my parents were never sanghi they were never bigoted i don't know what happened suddenly right. they have become um i don't know if any of you have watched a documentary called as the act of killing by joshua apanaima no have you guys seen the documentary so it's, i've uh, i've heard of it yeah go on it's it's brilliant so it is a movie so he made two movies right so the one that is mostly talked about is the act of killing the one that i really like is the look of silence so i'll just uh, give a gist of what the movies are about so the movie talks about the indonesian killings of 1965 to 66 and you know suharto overthrew sukarno and then there was this uh, huge coup in which you had a massive uh, let's say a mass murdering uh, spree right so you had this uh paramilitary organizations which went on and killed a bunch a, a whole deal of communists uh in indonesia so this is basically history. so i started watching the documentary for getting information to understand you know from a leftist perspective how uh, communists were slaughtered and by the end of the documentary i was uh, I, i was getting completely different information than what i was you know what i wanted to watch it's it's not just mm-hmm. about historical uh, occurrence of how they slaughtered the communists but who slaughtered the communists you know i could completely i wouldn't say i could relate with them but i see i understand uh, you know like who they are and how dangerous it is like if you if you don't constantly uh, the, the point that chandu got like we are all capable of uh, you know uh, we are we are in special or something like this so the movie talks about actually making those killers enact the killing again mm-hmm. you know it starts mm-hmm. off with the fact that you have this guy called Anwar Congo who was a huge don in those uh, you know they were basically paramilitary gangsters or who mm-hmm. took these people off from their family and then they put them in a place where they completely butcher them or slaughter them or so on and so forth and you see these things so they they kind of started off as like with a lot of pride and a lot mm-hmm. of you know like gungho that we actually did it Mm-hmm. and slowly and slowly when they when they do it they they couldn't do it in in camera it's too much for mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and at the end of it, it ends with the shot in which the anwar kongo the lead of this movie if i can say that he he goes and he goes to the terrace in which they actually killed so many people mm-hmm. and he he vomits he continued continuously vomits for 3 or 4 minutes and then that that that's just how the movie ends and the 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 stunning thing about this movie is that uh it there is one scene in which Anwar Kongo enacts uh, the killing that he did before and he asks his grandchildren to watch that they're saying that you know grandpa has starred in the movie you, you should watch it and Joshua kind of emphasizes it's not something that's uh, you know suitable for the kids and then he lets them go after a while and at which point he kind of breaks down and the the second movie the 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 look of silence is phenomenal because of the fact that it's one guy who actually goes and confronts his his brothers uh, you know his brothers uh, murderers slowly and slowly he confronts his brothers murderers and there is a, a variety of responses there is a variety of responses from the murderers actually so they one of them start start you know uh, starts kind of uh, going off in a rant in which he says uh he's justifying what he did and he kind of intimidates uh, both Joshua and the guy who confronts uh and then he kind of is really intimidating because they are still in power in Indonesia and in which one once you see that there is one grandpa who's like 70 80 years old who's completely nuts who has gone 
and he was just talking about how drinking uh, blood is rejuvenating and there is a whole whole deal of whole sleuth of stuff that's happening there one line like one, one kind of light at the end of the tunnel in this movie is that there is uh, one uh, woman who was sitting uh, beside a, a killer who is his dad and this her dad has amnesia now and the woman starts talking about like at the end of the day she asks sorry she says like i understand what you went through and that that was the only thing that the the, the guy got and he 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 says something that i would never forget i i know that uh, you know i have to inform you that your dad actually killed my brother but i understand it is your dad still and then it's it's a moment that where both of them uh, break down and to 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 genuinely have these things because when you have constructed hatred when you have constructed communal hatred over and over mm-hmm. for a long period of time to break mm-hmm. down these walls and to see that what it actually takes to not be a part of this hatred in those communities where like mass killing mass murder has been so normalized where you know like uh, treating the the other as uh, uh, you know dispensable has been so normalized to be to not to be uh, participating in thing, in these things to not to be that it takes a lot and and, mm-hmm. and it was so evident in that movie and it could, you know they, those people are so normal you could it because it was taken in indonesia i could see that some of them talk exactly like you know the people i know in my real life and you could really mm-hmm. feel that uh, go, going forward so i think those two documentaries would be really uh, interesting to watch the other thing that i wanted to suggest is that i think epw did an article in which a, a journalist went and talked to these people uh, who were uh, in the ground working for bajrangal that was pretty mm. well if you guys mm-hmm. want to and i i do want to say that there are a couple of books that i have come across as well that uh, that are from say rss and um, you know there is bhavar megwanshi's i could not be a hindu um, and i think there's one more by shubh mathur called uh, everyday life of hindu nationalism and ethnographic account um, that actually kind of break down how the sangh operates and kind of you know really works upon people's uh, ideology and and constructs hate in very specific ways that i think is worth unpacking because i think what i i'm i'm more and more fascinated and convinced by all of our arguments that we are talking here about processes of power rather than the subjects of power right we're 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 trying to say that people are just people and and they they're good bad whatever their moral character or whatever it is um is is not entirely relevant to understanding how violence happens it's really the processes of power and the the ways in which power flows in and out of these formations that is important to unpack and that perhaps we should invest our energies there uh pinky did you have a point yeah um i like the idea of thinking of the fact that at the end of the day there is something irreducible about human beings that you know that th- that they are caught up in processes so i do like that i mean even if sometimes it seems a little unbe- unbelievable and it seems like not the right cynical approach to take i feel like i don't want to commit to any other belief uh, because if we if we don't believe that people are fundamentally people like what can we even do right and i feel like everything that we're getting at like oh it could be anybody it could be just you and me like once we have established that and once we've established just how again normal it is for people to to think this way i mean we can't then turn around and then say oh but all of them are too far gone because then that that fundamentally means that we've conceded space to more than half the population right so there is there is that but um the thing that i'm trying to figure out is like 
the moments that I always see, like in the documentary that um, Didi talked about, like the moments where something breaks down, like some wall breaks down, and suddenly you see everybody reduced or reduced or maybe enlarged to the the, the basic humanity that they're supposed to have. They always seem to come in an unplanned way, right? And they always seem to come at an like after there has been so much cost. And uh, what I am concerned about is how can we develop uh, media, propaganda, community, and all of that that we can access that more easily without feeling like we've like kind of gone to hell and back, right? Before before we are sort of like we have our sort of guards broken down so much that we have no option but to like literally break down and and concede each other's humanity. Like how can we stop? going to that point every single time and arrive at that quicker. And I, I think that there's so much, again, like liberal media that tries to show people in, in that more humanized sense, but they never seem to be convincing enough, right? Like uh, the left finds them a little too, uh, a little too like sentimentalized, like, oh, you're just trying to, you're not ideological enough. Like you're just trying to say that, oh, look, we're all human beings and we can all get along. And like the left is not satisfied. And the right finds it so easy to to, to show it as like some kind of modern liberal affectation. Like, oh, this is like snowflake stuff and it doesn't hold up to like, all the years of propaganda that you know we've been showing you um yeah i think the problem also is that there is an entire mechanism to construct them first as monsters as ultimately evil so then mm-hmm. to undo that and say that they're actually human and they're flawed and etc cetera, etc cetera, becomes much more complicated because you've already established some some standard of monstrousness right mm-hmm. and i think that that dialectic is what we have to break which is to stop painting people as monsters so then we can also start seeing them as as sort of you know subject to certain kinds of processes of power and so on um, by the, by the... Pinky, you mm-hmm. again ended your whole tirade with a bunch of questions. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think, like, just to answer Pinky's question, and I think we should be very humble and not cocky about the fact that, um, you know, the right has time and again, and especially in recent times, uh, partly due to hardships, partly due to historical uh, racism and classism and so on and so forth, constructed a really hard part to undo and we can't be really cocky and say like we will it's 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 that and we will do it very simply and we will take those things away and uh, these things will vanish and then we'll uh, get back to the land of uh, the promised socialism i think it's going to be a lot of work and it's uh, there are a lot of answers i simply don't think we know even if we uh, understand or even if we if we get to the point where we completely understand how these networks operate how these propaganda operates the counter propaganda is really going to be uh, uh, really going to be an uphill battle because to convince inherently people who have been demonized you, you know to convince people to not demonize people who have been demonized time and again for a long period of time by multiple forces for their own interests is never going to be uh, an easy task it's, it's, and it's it's really you have to be humble about it i don't think it's easy yeah, and I think also our, our counter-propaganda is probably going to exist in the same public sphere as the propaganda still exists. So in some ways, it's really a huge battle where we are not just, we, we should try not just to be reactionary, but we also do have to respond to it. Um, and it's 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 a twofold project in some ways, right? Which is give something productive and generative at the same time that we are also deconstructing what the, the, the opposition is saying. So that double-edged sort of project is really going to take a lot of effort. It's going to come with some failure and having to learn from it in really hard ways I think Um, and we should be sort of preparing ourselves for what that will involve. 
I think we more or less said anything, uh, the, everything that we wanted to say. Do people want to give final thoughts? Uh, shall I start with Chandu? Uh, my final thoughts are that hate uh, is a serious issue. And like any other serious issue, it deserves a serious analysis. I, I also think that it's an analyzable issue. And uh, the first step to analyze something is to collect information and intelligence about it. And I think hence that leftists would be served well by trying to understand how the systems which the fascists use to generate, propagate, nurture and, and, and spread hate, how, how, to, how those systems work and hence how to destroy them. Right. Uh, Dilip, do you want to go next? Yeah, I think in the, uh, this, this has been uh, ongoing a long uh, battle between the far right and the uh, almost the rest of the group and I think it's going to get progressively worse because of who is going to rule the world and who is ruling the world for the uh, past few years. The neoliberal status quo has actually ensured the hatred uh, machinery functions very smoothly and really uh, nicely so there is going to be a lot of scapegoating, a lot of hatred and xenophobia coming forward, especially with the climate crisis that is accelerating, there is going to be even more hatred towards mm -hmm. the people who are going to uh, who are going to have to immigrate to these places. So I think it's also really time to be more courageous and not to, you know, not to be uh, not to be afraid to actually articulate our views. If you truly believe in the fact that every human being deserves their dignity, you are going to articulate for the fact that uh, the borders are not a thing that we should really care about. So if more and more we shrink inside, more and more we just respond to the paradigms that are being forced on us by the uh, far right, the more we are going to lose. The more we just answer to them, the more we are going to lose. The more we are going to be assertive and come out in open and truly believe what we say, just like those uh, assholes have said, it's going to be uh, much better for us. Even if we lose, at least we should say what we believe in. Mm. Pinky? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to atone for all my questions by making several sweeping statements. And <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> One is that I, I do think that some of the trying to understand the right, as much as we need to do more of it, has started to happen. It's not like we're not trying to understand that. But what I'm thinking is maybe what could make the crucial difference is that we try and understand the right by not making the understanding itself the end goal but always understanding but always sort of realizing that the understanding is a process in order for us to end that hatred so i think our, our mechanisms for even investigating and even like coming to a realization are going to look different from what they look now if we understand them as a means to an end basically that's one thing and uh, the other thing i think is that uh, we are very strongly which is that right now I think part of the problem is that we are we feel like we have to make the choice to be empathetic sometimes and then not empathetic other times and I think that a very difficult but worthwhile task is not setting boundaries on our capacity for empathy uh, sort of seeing our ability to see every human being as a human being as boundless but understanding that the discrimination and the hatred definitely skews very much one way and not the other. So finding a way to prioritize and emphasize the dignity of oppressed and marginalized groups while also showing that we're not putting limitations on our capacity to empathize with everybody's humanity, which is, I think, something that most of the time the left isn't able to do. We always need to almost show that we can only support one group by sort of closing off our minds towards the other. But if we can not do that, but still prioritize whose dignity we want to emphasize further, I think that will be a real 
human victory, which I personally think we're yet to see in any widespread way. So, yes, yeah. and I'll second everything that everybody has said so far. And I want to remind everyone that, you know, when we say we want to humanize the oppressors or whatever, the, the fact is that we can afford to do it if it's a collective process. If we expect this from victims of, you know, oppressed peoples to, to be the ones doing the sympathizing, it's not going to work. But we have to actually come together collectively. as And collectively, I do think unpacking what hatred is and collectively coming up to a solution of what radical love looks like. And I mean, you know, I'm thinking of radical black traditions in the US, which I've been immersing myself a lot in in the last few days. But there are notions of justice, notions of care, notions of equality and emancipation wedded very deeply into this idea of love. So to say that, you know, uh, love is just an emotion is not a thing. It's a structure Mm -hmm. of care. It's a structure of justice. It's a structure of liberation, collective liberation for all of us. Um, And we need to imagine what that kind of community looks like in countering what what hatred looks like. So so that's that's our little pedestal speech for today. Um, I want to thank Chandu, Dilip and uh, Pinky for being here. I think this was a great conversation. Uh, keep subscribing to Material Analysis. I know we haven't been regular with our with our pod episodes. We are as hit by COVID in some ways in our own lives, I think. And, and life just happens no, yeah, around just it. Just, 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 <laughs> Wait, what did you say, Dilip? No, we are just, we're just too lazy. No, oh, we're just lazy. Yeah. I wouldn't give say we're lazy. Excuse to return to our normal. Well, we have one manic person in our group. No prizes for guessing who, but the, <laughs> the rest great. of us are. Uh, yeah we have other things going on so anyway we hope we hope you can continue to support us and find our conversations useful to how you understand leftist politics in india uh thank you very much and please like share and subscribe and uh everyone have a good rest of the 2020 if possible in some way bye bye